When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. If you feel there's more to life than iPhones and iPads and mindless consumerism, if you're open to receiving information in all forms in any number of ways, if organized religion, organized political movements, and any kind of collectivism doesn't just quite cut it for you, if you engage in critical thinking, if you think for yourself, if you have peace and love in your heart and Jack Daniels in your bloodstream, if you believe that seriousness is a disease, if you're curious, then come, let us go on a journey together as we explore the outer limits of inner truth. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. Tonight, our show is about the crisis of masculinity and reconnecting with divine masculinity. We have Dr. Robert Masters, Mr. Jeff Casper, Mr. Ms. Yona Brim, and Ms. Constance Stellis on the program tonight, all discussing divine masculine energies, divine feminine energies, also discussing how... The mainstream media, maybe a lot of our collective uh, society, has these twisted depictions of what the ideal, what the ideal man or ideal woman are. So we're going to examine that, and we're also going to look at healthy masculine, healthy feminine type qualities. We're going to look and examine steps on how to get in touch with those energies and discuss how, when you're in touch with those energies, how that's going to improve your life. So... Without further ado, the Outer Limits of Intertooth Radio Show proudly presents The Crisis of Masculinity and Reconnecting with Divine Masculinity. Joining us now is Dr. Robert Augustus Masters, psychotherapist and trainer of psychotherapists and a best-selling author. We're going to discuss with him today his book called To Be a Man, A Guide to True masculine power dr masters welcome to the program thank you so much for being with us today sir thank you hey your book to be a man you go through it and you did look at all these aspects of what you feel true masculinity is can you please explain if you believe that in our culture and society today that we are having a crisis of masculinity i see that's an understatement understatement Big understatement. There's just so there's so much uh, suffering amongst men. There's so much struggle as to which way to go, and there's such confusion between being uh, successful and being sensitive, being uh, competitive in a good sense, and being vulnerable in relationship. There's so much. The demands of men are huge, and this is amplified even more by the shame that most men feel, even if they're not aware that it's shame. Most men are under a, a cloak of shame, an umbrella of shame, and um, if that's not addressed, men tend to be disempowered. They're they're split. They're partial. They're they're missing elements of themselves. So my my goal in writing the book, in part, was to 
give men a guide to becoming truly whole. So they, they're embracing their full masculinity. They're bringing head, heart, and guts into full-blooded alignment. Okay. So let's quickly identify something real quick. What are some of the definable qualities, the five or six definable qualities, what you feel is a true man, and what are some of the defining qualities you feel are in the typical man that is in today's society? Well, I think a healthy man, a healthy man, as I said, head, heart, and guts are in alignment. There's a sense of being awakened. There's a sense of not being run by one's conditioning. And I'll just say a little more about that because if we haven't really worked on ourselves authentically and deeply, we're going to be run by our conditioning, by the patterns we took on when we were kids. And we won't know that's happening. We'll tend to think that's just the way we are. So one sign of a healthy manhood is that we are facing um, our conditioning, our the origins of our patterns, and we're no longer being run by them. We may still have reactivity. We may still have unhealthy anger, fear, shame, but we relate to them more skillfully. And and we're uh, no longer blaming others or our environment for where we're at. We're fully responsible. And we know the difference between anger and aggression, for example. We no longer lash out and think, well, I'm just being angry, told me to show my feelings, so here I am. No, we recognize our responsibility in dealing skillfully with all of our emotions. Because most of us men have, um, through no real big fault of our own early on, didn't develop emotional literacy. When a man wakes up, truly wakes up, he becomes more emotionally literate, more capable of dealing skillfully with what he's feeling, being able to handle strong emotions in relationship without suppressing them or indulging in them. Okay. Well, how do you do that? What's the balance between suppressing and indulging? The difference? No, the suppressing the balance. How do you balance? The balance balance isn't in between the the two. No, it's not one or the other. It's about being in the third position where you, you are capable of both containing emotion and expressing it fully according to the needs of the situation. In other words, you're, you have an awakened relationship to your feelings. You're not just being run by them. You're not squashing them. In other words, if you have a real difficulty, say, with tears, you're not squashing that part of yourself. You're not keeping that in the shadows. You're also not overdoing it. You're not getting lost in it. So there's a, there's a, the balance requires a wakefulness. And um, I call this emotional literacy. Okay. Now... What about qualities and characteristics of, let's say, a, a typical man in today's society that doesn't have observed? What are some of the definable qualities we can observe in an individual? Well, there's two, there's, there's two great polarities there. One is the, the man we might call the hard male. He's overly aggressive. He's very competitive. He's out of touch with his heart. He's probably into pornography. And... Um, his opposite is what we might call the soft male. The guy is a nice guy, very nice guys, very sensitive, empathetic, but very little power. The balls are basically gone. And it's not about choosing one or the other, the hard or soft male. It's about taking the best of both and bringing them into an awakened uh, cooperation. So an awakened male, a healthfully awakened male, can express things with great force if necessary, take charge, He's also sensitive. He's also intuitive. He's not enemy to his softer feelings. He's capable of, of deep vulnerability. He's also capable of taking really fierce stands when necessary. 
what are some of the societal and parental conditionings, common societal parental conditionings? That well, one of the most common. Yeah, well, one of the most common is is um, uh, don't don't show your don't show yourself your feelings, toughen up, uh, grow up here, uh, meet meet the standards of, of toughness, hardness, uh, extreme competency, and that's an unhealthy challenge for most men. It just tends to break them, and they, then they hear the words "be a man" or "be more of a man" or "man up," and they feel some shame because they always fall short. It, none of us are perfect, so they're going to fall short, and, and that causes a kind of a crippling in men, a, a splitting away from the, the feelings and ways of being that they think they're not supposed to show, and that gets driven into what we might call their shadow. You know, the parts of ourselves that are we deny, we disown, we pushed aside and in a healthy male the shadow elements are not hidden they're one is aware of them one doesn't let them run the show one does some what we might call shadow work facing these elements working with them skillfully as far as the institutions and types of groups of people that would let's say provide a, gre- a breeding ground for these two extreme ends of the masculine spectrum that you described, what would be those groups, what would be those types of societies? Well, I think and, it's, elements of societies, do you think it, is it schooling, is it religion, is it uh, certain political movements that, um, that tend to promote these ideals or raise people in this particular way? It's in every area. I mean, this is, this is cross-cultural. It goes everywhere. And I think up until the... 60s, it was mostly the hard meal that was held as the ideal. Then with the advent of the new age and so on and so forth, men began embracing more so-called feminine qualities, and which is great, but they tended to lose their spine, their, their male power in doing so. And there's been a backlash against that. Now I think there's a new type of male on the horizon in which all these qualities coexist in their best forms. There's enormous pressure. I mean, most, most schooling systems... Uh, reinforces. They don't teach men emotional literacy. There's an implication that, that a, a boy, if he's going to be a little man, has to be tough, has to harden himself, and if he cries, he's made fun of, or there's some allegations made as to his sexual orientation. And it goes on. And I've seen many, many men crippled by the pressure, including very, very successful men, very worldly men, the pressure to keep going and to not let out what's deep inside, which is usually a lot of vulnerability, some grief, um, suffering. I think when a man steps into his true power, one thing he does, and I'll make this real simple, he learns to turn toward his pain. He turns toward his difficulties. And this is done despite his fear. Because courage doesn't mean you're not scared. It may mean you're very scared, but you still take the step. So when a man wakes up in this way, he turns toward what he normally would turn away from. Maybe just a little bit, but he turns toward it. I mean, that's the step of, of the hero in a man. Once he starts to turn toward his own suffering and pain, then he takes responsibility for it, not just intellectually, but he, takes, he does this all the way down to his core. Okay, so when he takes responsibility, does that mean he owns the, the pain and suffering? Does he embrace it? Does he, what, yes. claims to be one of his own? Does, he, does there, like, this lack of separation... Yep, like he he owns it. He claims it as as his, and he um, let's just take one element. For example, the little boy in the man. Every man has a, a little boy of varying ages. He does two things. He both 
loves that one. He embraces that one the way a good father should, a son. And he also protects that one. So he creates a, a, a matrix of safety for that, the emergence of that vulnerable, pre-rational part of himself. And most men tend to turn away from the place in themselves that's young and vulnerable and somewhat incompetent. They're kind of ashamed of it. And such a big step to shift from being ashamed of these places in ourselves to actually embracing them, truly embracing them, claiming them as us, and protecting them. Okay. What about people who are aware of their inner suffering that tend to manipulate the way reality comes through the field and spectrum, and they're purposely doing that in order to protect a part of themselves from really seeing reality from the way it truly is. Well, that can, that, that, that can work short-term, but long-term, that has to be exposed. And when a man wakes up to a certain degree, he starts to see these places in himself where he's manipulative. He's trying to uh, strategically organize reality according to what he thinks it should be like. And he hasn't yet stepped into his full power. He's still doing the power from the sidelines. There's no deviousness in a man once he's, he's awakened to a certain level. He's straight, he's, he keeps his word. He's straightforward. He has integrity. And he can be trusted. He doesn't leak energy. He's a safe, he's a safe uh, environment for, for women and relationship. And yet he's no weakling. He's very strong. He's very powerful. You mentioned at the very beginning of our interview that a lot of men today carry with them a tremendous amount of shame. Yes. And reading through your book, specifically remember there's a part where men are called to say, oh, you, know, you have to step up, you have to be a man, you have to do certain things. Yes. Is that part of the indoctrination uh, to shame? What are, some of the, what are some of the elements or examples you see of shame being ingrained into children? Um, well, especially when children are, are given the message, if you don't do this, you're not a good person. You're bad, or else there's or else, or else the threat of love being withdrawn. And once that happens to a child, they they feel inadequate. They've fallen short of the mark, and they realize in their, in their psyches, if I don't do what's required of me, I'm going to lose love, I'll lose uh, position, I'll lose status. And they're shamed often. And uh, many people who do the shaming aren't necessarily bad people. They're just people who are, are a little ignorant around shame. They haven't understood what it is, how it manifests. And a tricky thing about shame is that when it kicks in on us, most of us convert it to other states immediately, quite automatically. So say if you're not knowing yourself very well, some shame kicks in because you've done something that's hurt a partner or you've made some mistake at work, you may suddenly get aggressive toward the others, and then it looks like you're only aggressive. Or you make it aggressive toward yourself, or you have an inner critic attack. You put yourself down. But in either case, you've avoided your shame. Or many of us will dissociate, will withdraw emotionally, will go flat, will go emotionally numb when we feel shame. So it looks like we're not feeling shame, we're feeling something else, but it begins with shame. And shame is probably the least um, known emotion in psychotherapy and in spiritual practice. Many teachers, for example, in spiritual arenas will often inadvertently shame their students for not doing better, making the implication being if you only meditated more, chanted more, believed more deeply in the teachings, you'd be in a better place. Well, may I pause you for just one second? What is the difference between shaming someone for the sake of shaming 
and demanding that people expect more for themselves and by utilizing shame as a means to help people to expect more for themselves. Shame, that, that, yeah, shame does not help. Any, anyone who uses shame as a, as a tactic to help people grow is making a major error because what's missing from that is heart. If you're encouraging someone and, and inspiring them and challenging them and you do it from your heart, you can be quite fierce, but it will have a really, it'll have an impact. The person knows in their heart of hearts they're being cared about. If you shame them, you're giving them the message in so many words that they're defective, something's wrong with them, there's no love. And people may respond to that, but it backfires. Okay. And another aspect is how is shame utilized in organized religion? And what is the long-term effect of that? A lot. A lot. And it actually becomes guilt. Guilt to me is what happens when shame and fear mix together. But it begins with shame. If you're told in so many words that you're defective, you know, original sin, those doctrines, something's wrong with you, um, you're already split. You're already feeling under the, you're under the thumb of shame. And shame contracts us. It collapses us. It gives us a sense that we're defective. And, um, it's kind of interesting, especially if you grow up in Catholic, they tell you oh, yeah. when you're very born. By the way, I know you're only two, but you see that man on the cross? You killed him. That's you. <laughs> yeah. you, you did it. We, we all did this. You don't remember it, but you did it. Or other religions, like some, some yes. form, a lot of Buddhism, for example, will say that anger is uh, is just an unwholesome emotion. There's something wrong with it. So if you get angry, you're blowing it. You could be ruining your karma. And I looked into it, and they, they, they use the same term to translate um, aggression, anger, hatred, ill will. So poor old anger gets lumped in with some pretty dark states. And anger is not the problem. The problem is what do we do with anger? Do we turn it into hostility, aggression? Will or do we use it as kind of an awakening force, a way of underlining what we're saying? So in religion, I mean, there's so many. I mean, that's a breeding ground for for heavy duty shame and a lot of guilt. So, when people are experiencing a tremendous amount of guilt and shame, where they have it, does that allow them to be more vulnerable to outside stimuli or suggestiveness and is that increase their chances of being subservient to the will of another and not true or be more inclined to listen to what their own inner voice is saying? Exactly. They, they lose their... See, see uh, guilt splits us. If I, if I can get you feeling guilty, you, I've got you split into, into kind of a frightened child who does the bad deed over and over again and an authoritarian, whip-wielding parent, and which means you're split. And divided we fall. You want to start your own religion, get people feeling guilty about something they can't help but have, like just sexuality, and then um, that's how cults begin in many ways, etc. And uh, many religions could be called cults of many, just as some couples could be called the cult of two. Now, I want to just uh, inject one thing in here: is that there are some people who really do have a, a passion or a love for their faith, or they have a love for their spiritual beliefs, is there any way that they can still have their deep, profound religious convictions, spiritual convictions, without having the shame that's associated with it? Can a person, say for example, be, uh, be a strong Jew or be a strong Catholic, and still have that while not having the guilt or shame associated? I think that's a very slippery slope. I mean, if you go to the esoteric levels of, of, of Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, 
there's more sanity there and there's a lot less shame. But I think what one is asked to do here is somehow examine what belief is itself and start to develop a relationship to the very process of belief. Because beyond belief is, is direct experience. And direct experience of our deeper dimensions is a much richer thing to um, go for than simply to hang on to certain beliefs. Okay. You know, we're going to talk right now just about, in our culture today, we seem to have a lot of people that use pornography a lot. Or yes. it, it's, yes. Especially in the United States. I think the United States produces more pornography than anywhere else in the world. And it's so easy and accessible. What does pornography do on the short-term and long-term effects of not only just men but women in general? It makes real intimacy almost impossible. Because Why is that? It, because it's in most men who are using porn, there's, there's a, a strong link between mind and genitalia and a, and a very strong fantasy life that's just largely based on their psychological and emotional upbringing. And in that, it's a private domain and one's in control, and a real-life person is very different than that. So most couples we work with, the women will complain. If the man's using porn, he just is not capable of being fully present with her, and vice versa. If once, you, once you go beyond fantasy and sexuality, you can have direct encounters that are profoundly healing, profoundly awakening, but that requires, amongst those who use porn, that they learn to outgrow it. You can't just repress and stay as bad because it will still sit in some corner of your psyche fermenting, building in the dark, so to speak. My work is around this area is to teach men <clears throat> how to outgrow it. And, and how, they... see, yeah, how to outgrow it and to see, see the origins of it. Like, what were you doing when you first got into it? Or when you're about to get pornographic, you're getting heated, What's your emotional state? What's going on? How old do you really feel? And chances are you're angry, you're lonely, you're sad, you're bored. But when we just go straight into porn, we don't get to examine those states. The porn takes the edge off it. Maybe you're less anxious, but you haven't worked anything through. You still have the same old pattern that you've eroticized and you're trapped in it. And I think one of the deepest areas of growth for men is who have porn habits is to, is to face the habit and work with it skillfully, like I described in my book. In so doing, they outgrow it. They become capable of real intimacy with women and men. And there's a, there's a lot of courage required in that, and the results, are, um, the benefits are immeasurable. Also in our culture today, there are a lot of people who, there's a lot of violence being perpetually shown, whether it's in video yes. games, whether yeah. it's in movies. And what impact does that have? Does that desensitize people or sensitize men to violence, and also there seems to be in our society a glorification of war. Like to go and to kill is to be a heroic. That is the ultimate. You're uh, right. Yeah. You know. That's so sad because that's that's true in so many domains. That that we've we've violence can be glamorized, and of course, it gets mixed with sex, it gets even more edgy, more juicy, more appealing to many people. Like part of the work here is to is to learn the difference between anger and aggression. And because violence is just extreme aggression. Where we, if I'm angry at you, for example, and we're friends, I can be quite pissed off, heated, but I'm still caring about you. I shift into aggression. I don't give a damn about you. I just want to take you down, hurt you, make you wrong, get violent. Of course, I take it further. And and if we don't know our own violence, and we all have violence, every, we're all capable. I, I'm capable of violence under certain conditions. Anyone is. The Dalai Lama even spoke of virtuous violence once. It's part of our humanity, but it doesn't mean we get acted out. 
and and I've seen men who've gone to battle, um, and they've when they've done deep inner work, the deep core work that's required to heal our wounding. They've all told me that this is more difficult, more challenging, and more scary than war. Being in the battlefield, that's the deepest calling for a man. I think is to do the work that makes him a full man, a full-blooded, present, responsible, trustworthy man. Going to war is kind of brings out some of the best qualities, but there's so much damage. I mean, so many guys are coming back from the war zones with PTSD and messed up, and the suicide rate is high. I think it's a national shame that that um, so that's going on in this country, and it's being dealt with so superficially. Sure. Is there a particular reason why you you feel or have observed that you have so many millions of people that love war or that love to 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 engage this you know type of behavior or support it because everyone i mean it's strange it seems that in our culture everyone seems to want to love and support the troops or they want to support the people that uh, go to these foreign countries that you know that we think that are out there defending our our freedom and that we we say we love them we support them but i mean i would like to think that if we really love and support them would we be doing everything possible not to put them in that position. I think you're right because look look how we, look how they're cared for when they come back. It's it's really really shoddy. There's more more of a pressure go over there do the right thing. And um I mean I still work with guys triadically who are suffering from PTSD from Vietnam back in the late 60s. It's still here. And and it's not about with we're not going to end war. I think war is part of the human condition, but we can certainly change how we relate to it and start to work on the internal war we have. So if I'm at war with myself, and however subtly, I'm part of the problem. If I'm if I'm doing if there's battles going on inside me, I'm not taking care of or working with. Um, I'm part of the problem. So it's not just about pointing the finger outside ourselves. It's about also looking inside. Where am I at war? Where am I dehumanizing others or dehumanizing a part of myself? It's not all about love and peace. It's about getting in touch with your natural power. And then the fascination with, with um, violence and porn starts to fade. We still like intensity. We still enjoy maybe watching mixed martial arts or something. But we're not, we're not lost in it. Where do you think the way things are right now, we're just talking about within the, the United States, or maybe even on the world, where do you think the future of... of Sorry, masculinity is going. Do you feel it? We, we I think that, I think it's at a crisis point because what has been up to this point is not working. It's not about, and there's not going to be some massive shift in consciousness because a few good books come out. It's more like I see small circles of men, small numbers of men, starting to turn that corner and refusing to participate in the in the in the cultural trance a lot of most men are in. So for myself, I used to do very large groups. Now I do men's groups. I only allow eight men to come at a time for five days. Yeah, I could do a lot more and it'd be effective. But with those eight, I'm able to take them really, really deep and 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 ground that. If I had more men, I'd make more money, but the quality would go down a little bit. So I'm making my my work is to just work at it, just a few people at a time. What are some of the stages or main points that a, a man will go through life and develop? Like where do you where do you where do you say that? You're going through childhood. You've reached. You're now. You're a teenager, and you're maturing. What are the stages of maturity that you see in a typical man's life? I think that's simply put, the the, the first big step is is an awakening. It can be 
psychological, emotional, and also spiritual. An awakening where we don't try and get away from the world. We feel more embodied, more here. We start to see our inner workings. We start to recognize our conditioning. We, in other words, we stop being on automatic. And that's just the start. Many people think that's the end. That's the start. And out of that comes an increased responsibility to behave more sanely in the world. And one of those, one step there, as I said earlier, is to turn toward the painful. Make your longing to be truly free stronger than your longing to distract yourself from your pain. And that's an ongoing process. It doesn't, you don't just do it for a few weeks or a year, then we're done. I still do that. It's easier and easier as I get older. Turn toward the difficult. And, and that brings a certain sobering joy. Once you realize you can, everything is workable. Then the warrior in us emerges, not in some glorified, glorified way, but just here's our natural heroism, our natural desire to really, really be of true service to other people. Not for any goic purpose, but because there's nothing else to do after a certain point. So I think once the awakening starts in a man in his 20s, 30s, 40s, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And that awakening often is catalyzed by extreme suffering. Very few men have an awakening just because, well, they wake up one day and feel they just suddenly get it. It's more like a relationship breakup, you get cancer, um, maybe you, come, you go to war, um, your wife cheats on you, you lose your, your children. Something very heavy happens, and you're in despair, you're in agony. At the same time, in the midst of your grief, there's a sense there's more to life. There's a deeper you emerging. And why is it that something of that magnitude is the turning point or the trigger? I think because it's required, I think we're, I think most of us are so stubbornly entrenched in our conditioning. We don't let it, we, we can read about it, be told about it. We, we don't shift. You have to be, we have to be hit pretty hard usually to get it. And most people require, I don't know, I certainly did, major blows in life. Not that I wish that on anyone, but those major blows are, are potential wake-up calls, alarms. And um, if we don't heed them, we just keep suffering, we get older, and then we die. If we heed them, we can literally enter a deeper life well before we're hit old age. And I see the men I work with really have that longing to go for that. They can sense it, they can intuit it, they're scared of what it might take to get there, but they want to go there. They want to dive into the deep end of the pool and just take it further. Now, if somebody really wants to, let's say if there are people out there that want to accelerate their their growth or accelerate their uh, their process of uh-huh. healing their shadow, what are some of the things that you'd recommend? Do you feel that it's something that they, should they voluntarily cry? Should they voluntarily figure out some way to release a, some form of emotion? That's, that's not that's that's, yeah, that's not enough. But that's the start. And the thing is, it's also implicit. In what you're saying is the, the the shadow of that is it can be a certain ambition to do that. And I see guys that want to go really deep, accelerate. Often there's an ambition as to as tied to they'll suddenly they they'll think they'll be very free if they do that. Life will be easier. They'll be more immune to suffering. I think the art here is to make haste slowly. I mean, it's only so so fast we can go. If I'm doing shadow work with you. You may get it intellectually within maybe a few days, but to really live it, you can't do it in a weekend workshop. You just can't. If you think you are, you're deluded. It's it's more of a marathon than a sprint, and the results are, are there. It works, but I think the first step is to, is to feel the hunger for a deeper life and also to feel your resistance to it. Anyone who wants to go deeper 
and is very enthusiastic is often not seeing the resistance to doing it. So I often have, when I'm working with men with this, I let them express their resistance too, express the part of them that does not want to work, does not want to expose what's difficult, does not want to get vulnerable. Once that's done, then we can go even further at the pace the man can handle. Someone, someone's grieving heavily with me, maybe ten, after 10 minutes, they're done. If I, have to, if I try to have them go further, it backfires. So I have to be very sensitive to how much is enough. If we go through too much, it doesn't work. If we do too little, it doesn't work. So there's a, there's a balance required here, and that balance is best sensed through our, our awakened intuition. If somebody is on that path and they're really trying to, let's say, come to terms with, with their shadow yeah. and that they're using alcohol or they're using another form of drugs and under these altered states they're able to come to terms with it, is there any positive benefit of doing that particular way, knowing that they've gone farther in dealing with the situation as opposed to not going there and not I, I I don't I don't I don't I don't think so. I think there's there can be an initial opening and someone's done a psychedelic, done some exploration with other drugs. There could be some opening, but once the opening's there, I think you want to proceed then without drugs to take it further. So I don't use that in my work at all. I see many people have taken uh, all kinds of uh, drugs from all types, and I see usually this is taking them backward. Now and then it's broken, the gates open, and they're ready for more. It's difficult enough to face stuff on, on, on one's own, like to face one's patterns and our early history, and, and we see how, how we are the way we are. That's a very powerful thing to when we witness that. It can be, it can be shattering. And um, I think the, the deep meditative states, um, the states we're in when we have a profound emotional breakthrough, those are altered states unto themselves. And out of that emerges a sense of being more grounded, more embodied, whereas a lot of people are doing, uh, trying to get this way, go in this direction through various drugs, they're not very grounded. They may see altered, wonderful things, they may get enamored of exalted states, uh, get very psychic for a little while, but so what? I'm looking at how are you with your children? How, how are you doing with your wife and your friends? How's your work? How down to earth are you? And once you come to terms and you make peace and you really say tie all the loose ends together of this pain and suffering that say, mm -hmm. a man is going through what have you seen in your the course of your years as to what happens what are the, some of the profound effects going forward what, ha what happens in short I'll make it very simple is we, we become intimate with all that we are not just the good stuff but all of it the good, the bad, the ugly you become intimate with it which means you know it really, really well. You're not lost in it. Intimacy does not mean you're lost in another person or state. It means you're very close, but you have just enough distance from that other to keep them in lucid focus. So I think what happens is, is intimacy, and there's no end to that. You can always become more intimate. It's like love. I don't care how deep you go in love. It's endless. It goes deeper and deeper. Just like the mystery we live in. Deeper and deeper and deeper. We don't arrive at a point where we've got it all figured out and that's the final rung of realization. I think this, I think that's a fantasy many of us have. But beyond that, is um, the reality of, of it just goes deeper and deeper. And after all, you don't mind. It's fine that love has no bottom. It's fine that the mystery cannot be explained. 
it's fine that we're here in this in, in this embodied form, living our our lives, doing the best we can between our birth and our death. Dr. Robert Augustus Masters, psychotherapist and trainer of psychotherapists, best-selling author. I want to thank you so much for being with us today, and you can learn more about Dr. Masters by going to his website at robertmasters.com. When you go to his site, you're going to see a lot of his books there. You're going to see a lot of his great writings and all these events that he has coming up. I highly, highly recommend you check him out and check out his books because reading one of his books, To Be a Man, which you can buy on Amazon, it's a great read, and it'll help you out tremendously. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Masters. My pleasure. Joining us now is Miss Yona Brentis, energy coach, and Mr. Jeff Casper, energy healer and metaphysical teacher. You can learn more about them by going to their websites, selfunification.com and transcodes.com. Thank you both for being with us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Definitely. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Thanks for having us on the show. My pleasure. On Transcodes, you have this step called Step 12, Divine Masculinity and Divine Femininity. I was wondering if you can both elaborate on what you are describing in this particular lesson and what some of the lessons you are teaching. Well, one of the biggest issues um, people have that are trying to um, align themselves to more spiritual thinking and spiritual being Mm -hmm. is um, to kind of find out um, what it is that they need to aspire to. And there's a lot of talk of rediscovering your inner femininity um, for both males and females. So it's one of uh, the most frequently asked questions that we get, which is why um, we basically compiled it in the step. We have a modality in which we actually um, guide people through the connection process because for most people it's the um, the inner connection that was kind of disrupted often in childhood mm-hmm. or um, just through their life experiences. So the first step is always kind of to go through um, like the inner balance of masculine and feminine energies. Mm-hmm. And I think the big thing is to make sure that they understand that both are needed. And a lot of times on the path, one or the other is emphasized either through the collective or through the work. And a lot of times both are needed one point or another. Of course, one is needed more than the other typically for healing or reconnection. But at the end, it becomes a balance. According to you both, what are some of the ideal definitions of healthy masculine, healthy feminine, and also how are those ideal idealizations of those two qualities disrupted most of the time or commonly during childhood, early child development? That's a huge topic that could go on for about, well, it's thousands of books out there, but I think the big thing when you define healthy masculine and feminine, please add in if you want to, you know, um, is that it's a learning the balance between the two. Uh, you can be overly masculine, you can be overly feminine. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. And when you're overly one or the other, or you're expressing too much of one or the other, that's where the imbalance occurs. And the process is learning how to connect with both and then combining the two. Because without either or without both, you have a tendency either to be too aggressive or too forward moving, or you just give all 
all this great connection, but you don't do anything. So a lot of times um, the imbalances and the damages occur early in life from improper role models, collective uh, programming, karmic patterns, traumas that occur of multitudes of abuse, of uh, neglect, of um, all kinds of suffering and pain. Even if it's not real, it can be perceived pain. And that can add up over time to the point where we start to form various kinds of judgments and misperceptions as well as defensive structure. What what Jeff said earlier, I think, is really important. It doesn't really matter whether we identify that we need to add a little more femininity to our being or masculinity. The balance is what matters. Mm -hmm. And collectively, we are out of balance. So depending on the sort of the the tribal group, the, the cultural group, race and so forth, um, our programming may vary a bit. But overall, our societies have been um, heavily uh, dominated through masculinity as an energy form. And so for most people, um, the recreating or rebalancing um, consists of, first of all, sort of embracing femininity on a metaphysical level of course that's a whole big topic because uh, a lot of the consciousness development that is taking place nowadays and the energies that are coming in are gearing people towards um embracing femininity however and that's i think also one of the main differences um between uh, what's kind of out there and what we do uh we do not um, transfigure or romanticize femininity in that respect. We do honor that the connection process is different for mm-hmm. males and females. Um, it's not like extremely different. It's just the approach is different. So if I have, you know, a lot of uh, uh, femininity in me already, then of course the connection process is a little different than if I don't. The interesting part is though that the majority of the women actually have more masculinity in them than they should. And the majority of men nowadays have more femininity than they should. Curious to know, why do you feel that? Why do you both feel that? that This is is really interesting. Well, it could be a multitude of reasons. I think a lot of times it's to, to reharmonize, just to rebalance. Um, it could be a culture issue. It's, um, You're just seeing it more and more, I think, because a lot of that strong masculine drive is being pushed out as not okay, but it's still there. So it's a challenge, you know, to see and unwind. And every person's a bit different there. Um, But I would agree with with Yona that um, you do have an imbalance on both sides. And now, when you are trying to, if a person says, okay, I'm going to make the commitment to connect to the ideal masculine and feminine aspects of my spirit, what are some of the ways that they do that? Is it through meditation? Mm-hmm. Do they listen to certain things? Do they align themselves to a certain frequency with the expectation that by focusing on that frequency, that that frequency is automatically going to balance them out? Do they take uh, certain uh, journeys that will allow them to have this occur? Is it a conscious thought to make this happen? Or is it something that needs to be worked on in the in the unconscious that's a really good question, Ryan. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, no matter what it is on our journey, um, no matter where we're at, every process needs to be a conscious process. 
you know, we can't just expect shortcuts or spells or anybody else do the work for us, for that matter. You know, so yes, it is a it is a process that takes place and has to take place on multiple levels. We do recommend. Um, I mean, you know, there's a of course the first there's an assessment process and. Um, maybe we kind of skipped this a little bit. Maybe we should talk about what those qualities are. Mm-hmm. You know, what are those qualities? Um, you know, uh, female energy is typically regarded as nurturing and loving and um, taking care, being there. Metaphysically spoken, feminine energy uh, or the divine um, feminine um, consists of the space holder. Mm-hmm. It's the it's it's a form of one part of creation that creates the space where masculinity is the direction it gives the whole thing the goal so to speak so um, masculine energy energy therefore is way more um, directed pointed mm-hmm. at something goal oriented um, more impacting driven. Yes. yes so those are like the overall sort of neutral qualities of course there's like positive and negative um, aspects to it or if you want um, balance and imbalanced aspects to it so the archetypes of um, um, masculinity when it goes wrong Mm -hmm. there's archetypes of femininity when it goes wrong so you have like the the loving mother archetype of course you know like the planet Gaia and everything that represents divine femininity but at the same time you have the wrathful mother you know that's destructive mm-hmm. you know like Kali for instance and with masculinity you'd apply um archetypes of course as the you know the king mm-hmm. the the graceful ruler but when it goes wrong um then you're dealing with an archetype called um the tyrant you know, the king tyrant. Those are just a few archetypes. There are a few more. And so like basic uh, psychology, Carl Jung and so forth. But this is part of the assessment process. So for a person to even, to be honest, uh, Ryan, we don't get calls. We do sometimes. But um, it's not like people say, hey, I need to connect with masculinity. How do I do this? comes later you yeah. know it's more like okay they they come to a, for a reading for a coaching session um, or do transmissions with us and um it's one of the things that pop up and this is like the complexity of it mm-hmm. is maybe something that's related to their inner child something that is related to um their karmic family setup and so forth and there those things will become visible So, um, you know, it's not just a theoretical idea, you know, that I would like to connect with the divine feminine or masculine. It's a hands-on, it can create hands-on problems, Mm -hmm. you know. So if if I identify, say, disdain towards femininity um, within a person's energy field, of course, then there is a conversation about that. And then we go back into their karmic family setup. We look at... Uh, some of the things, how he perceived, um, you know, like femininity represented through his mom, you know, for example, you know, sister and so forth. And then you start actually identifying that there is an imbalance there or that there is a wrong representation there. Mm -hmm. 
And the same, of course, uh, for women, you know, with masculinity when it comes to disdain. But there's multiple problems and they can show in many different ways. So when a person comes to the point where they can see that they have um, an imbalance or that they need to reconnect, um, then we approach it on all levels at the same time. So the first step is, of course, accepting that and not judging it, you know, to just see it all right. You know, I mean, I was born, we have a patriarchal society, so we all have the tendency to be um, sort of slightly weighted to the masculine side a bit more. And as a woman, I can tell you that this, the reason why this is um, so prevalent in women is because um, there is this sort of fighting instinct with it that if we don't become like men, in quotation marks, we cannot be successful or, you know, we cannot make it. So if a woman wants to be, say, successful in business, the first thing she'll try to do is she'll try to do it like like guys do it. You know, that's sort of a natural uh, pendulum swing in the other direction. And a lot of times, especially women, kind of get stuck there. So they lose the contact with their own femininity and uh, don't know how to find back. And for men, it's the other way around. You know, they they are aware that they may have issues with femininity and they, they start reading things, start hearing things, and then they may start feeling guilty about, mm-hmm. you know, not um, honoring femininity um, enough and so forth. And and then they kind of start to denounce their masculine traits. And neither one of those um, pendulums is healthy for the inner balance. But it's normal to a degree. Yeah, it's, you have to go through it. Yeah. And understandable. Right. So the, the reconnection process, therefore, has to take place on many different levels. Mm-hmm. So we do, we have an energetic process that we send people through where, and this is, I think, the, the one and major thing to remember where we um, depersonalize masculinity and femininity. You know, when, when you think of, of femininity as your wife, your mother, your sister, your grandmother, you know, in your mind unconsciously, you know, it will always be um, attached to the issues that you had with them. In reality, though, um, the mind femininity has nothing to do with my mother, my grandmother, or my sister. It, it expressed through them, mm-hmm. but you know, realistically, most of the dysfunctional parts <laughs> expressed, you know, <laughs> through you know our family constellations. So um, the first step is always to take it away from people, mm-hmm. you know, to take it away from the persons, and then comes the actual practical part. You know, to investigate where in my life am I expressing, if we talk about, say, feminine traits, where in my life am I expressing um, too much masculinity and how can I balance that out? And this goes very practical. You can see it in the way people move. You can see it in the way people talk. You can see it in the way people think. Um, and you can see it in the way they simply approach their um, problem solving. Mm-hmm. So if so, this is really practical. Excellent. And I want to just remind our listeners that Yona and Jeff 
they look at a person, they actually can look at the uh, their codes within them. Is that correct? That you can actually look at a person's soul and see where the balances and imbalances are, the visualization of it? Yes, you can see it and feel it also. Absolutely. With that, I wanted to ask, is that when you look at people and you look at a lot of people, do you find any common thread as far as what is happening in society that is often imbalancing their uh, person's spirit, a person's soul, in terms of the masculine and feminine? Are there societal influences more prevalent today that are causing a greater imbalance that you see in a more common light fashion when examining people? Well, there's a multitude of them, but I would say one of the biggest ones is disdain on both sides. Um, you see disdain for masculinity and femininity many times in each person. And that's one of the biggest ones I see, and I'm sure you don't probably agree with that. And then um, a bigger issue, too, is, of course, too, is the learning how to a lot of times people have a hard time allowing. They have a hard time going in that space and allowing some of those pains and those those hidden parts and those repressed aspects and those defense mechanisms to come forward. So a lot of times it's control, and that's one of the biggest steps anyways. But as a person like Yona was talking about, they go through the process and they begin to unwind some of the issues that they're dealing with, and they start to see there are imbalances within them uh, in multiple levels, and masculine and feminine would be one of them. A lot of times it's learning how to trust themselves and then other people so i would say in my view disdain control and trust are the big ones but please end. well yeah i mean as far as the causes goes or the influences that lead to these imbalances ryan um i think it's um almost like a non-brainer i mean apart from like any metaphysical theories if you just sort of look at our collective except for very few societies nowadays you know maybe some tribal and indigenous societies um femininity is pretty much widely degraded as weak as too soft uh and of course also um as sexual object um many different things i'm not being sort of hypercritical here i'm just sort of stating the obvious so um what are what is influencing the imbalance well Turn on your TV and you'll find out <laughs> within <Right>. 30 seconds. <laughs> it's the, it's uh, in, in media, it's in our laws, <laughs> you know, it's in our... Well, with that thing you mentioned, TV, is it easier, um, this is just a hypothetical, do you feel that it is easier to control a person by degrading the feminine within or to control or degrade them, degrade the masculine from within? What is making a person more susceptible? It's a very good question. I'll barge in there right right away. It's the easiest to control a person when a person is imbalanced. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's uh, femininity or masculinity. It just so happened to be femininity, um, you know, for the last uh, centuries, you know, or millennia, if you will, um, there's definitely a component that is missing when you take one out of the two out. The same would uh, probably apply if it were the other way around, you know? Right. And even if you were a balanced person, if you decided to watch basic television for, you know, six, seven hours a day um, or any type of, you know, YouTube, you name it, whatever, um, it will happen anyways because you will begin to align to imbalance. So even if you are fairly balanced and you feel really good, Go watch sitcoms for four hours and see how you feel afterwards. Do it for you know, yeah, it'd be crazy. Jeff, you bring up a great point because there are a lot of people that do daily meditations and they'll listen to uh, the meditations that you, you both of you have, mm-hmm. 
views that they're trying to align. But I mean, I guess they may have been realized that they're actually doing this. They're in the antithesis of that, but watching TV at a subconscious level. Is it the same thing? You're basically meditating on the, uh, on the, on the controlling forces. Well, what you, I mean, I, I think what you're getting at, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is if a person decides to meditate, pray, you know, be silent, walk through nature, align to beauty, whatever they choose that what I would consider more of a higher vibratory or a, not special, but, you know, has a faster vibratory rate, they're actually reprogramming their body as opposed to the same thing they do when they watch TV. They're programming their body the to a certain energy, energy body to lower aspects. So it depends. Whatever you focus on, you become. That doesn't mean TV's evil uh, or that doesn't mean that meditation is the best thing in the world. It depends upon the person, but it's a choice that we do every day. And we have thousands of choices uh, every day, and some of them we aren't even aware of, majority of them. But what you choose to align to when you are conscious and aware is what becomes who you are. Yeah, there's yes. no there's no difference. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, they still have that, both aspects within them, so it doesn't really matter. Um, sometimes there's there's obviously some patterns and some defense mechanisms that occur more often in in that population, um, but there's still an expression of both energies within them, and they can be unbalanced just like anybody else. Um, same thing with transgenders. So homosexuality is not an imbalance, not, you know, just to clarify that it's more of a choice, you know, and a lot of times it's something that um, was uh, determined by, you know, karmic propensities, you know, like with anybody of us, you know, but if we do want to become, um, you know, uh, sort of uh, confess ourselves that we feel more attracted to same-sex um, uh, people, then that is not necessarily an energetic thing. It's just something it's that somebody chooses to do um, because, and that's where, if you want to go into the problematic aspects of it, that's where you can go and, and ask questions, you know, like, okay, what does that do to you differently than, you know, being, you know, with a man or with a woman and what is behind all that. But energetically, there's very little difference. I have seen women that are more masculine than most men I know that are not homosexual and uh, that are homosexual. There's no difference. Mm -hmm. So it seems like it's just an, it's a balance as a challenge to balance energy. Right. Well, I mean, the society looks at homosexual as something special. If you look at it neutrally, I mean, you know, it's just like. It's the choice a person has and yeah. that doesn't take away. I mean, it'd be, and I don't, I don't want to compare it. I'm trying to think of an analogy, but you know, just because I have a different culture, different skin color, different, doesn't matter. You know, you can pick whatever um, choice you want to look at or pattern that you have. You still have to balance yourself. If you're working on spiritualism and spirituality and you're trying to connect more and you're trying to become enlightened, whatever term you want to use, transcendent, you have to look at those things. You have to accept this is the patterns that I have, but that doesn't mean I'm any more special or less special than someone else. Every person's got it. In our culture today, a lot of people like to reflect back on the 1940s and 50s and say, well, back in the day, you know, men were, <laughs> men and women were really tough and they were much tougher back then. What do you both define as qualities of a person who is was tough is it their ability to look at something that's terrifying and not be afraid is it their ability to show peace and love and serenity under a circumstance that would warrant a, a natural hateful reaction what do you feel are defining qualities of a person who's tough well okay um 
toughness would depend upon what level of uh, consciousness you're at. If uh, I'm at anger, toughness is beating the crap of anybody that gets in my way. Uh, if I'm at courage, toughness becomes the ability to look within uh, and to face my fears or to face anything that comes forward. So it's standing one's ground. Toughness at love, the, the conscious level of love, is choosing to see the good in all things. Uh, that's and pretty to simplified. Be to be exactly to be open-hearted and vulnerable. Exactly. And then if you go higher and higher, toughness becomes the willingness to let everything go. So if you're comparing the 40s and 50s, yeah, things were tougher back then, you know, but not really. I mean, it, it was just different. People had less um, comforts. They had less um, distractions. There were more open conversations because there was nothing else to do. A lot of times, you know, it was less. So um, nowadays it's a bit different. But nowadays toughness, if you're talking spiritually, it's just what Yoni said. And what I said, it's it's willingness to stand there and say, okay, I'm willing to go look at my stuff, regardless of what comes forward, the good, the bad, the ugly, the hidden, the love, the not loved, what. Whatever. And I'm willing to look at it and I want to embrace it and I want to try to become more than I already am. I want to enhance myself. Uh, enhance might not be the right word, but I want to work on myself and become more loving or more lovable. That's what I would call toughness. If I may say something. No, no, no. You know, Ryan, this is, you can cut this out, but uh, you know, I'm from Iceland, right? <laughs> and um, this is a very uh, sort of typical discussion we have here at home. And toughness is a very, has a very different definition from where I'm from, you know, where there's it's very Viking like uh, rules <laughs> still. But anyway, um, toughness, I would agree with you if you mean that guys were more guys back then than they are today. And I will tell you one thing. I come from a very feminist society. For me, you know, like freedom, all these things are birthrights. They're givens. I never had to work for them, you know, so I don't I'm not preoccupied with. Uh, men are all bad or anything like that. Um, on the contrary, what I see today, um, because, especially in spiritual circles, because the, the movement is towards the feminine, which is a little single-sided in my view, but um, it, it makes it very, very difficult for men nowadays on mm. the spiritual journey to kind of know what's okay. You know, this, the, the majority of clients that I work with male clients have huge guilt programs have huge um shame codes and and so forth that were either put upon them or that they just adapted by you know facing their inner aspects like jeff said shadow and sexual shadow and stuff like that finding out that yeah they they do have say dishonor or disrespect or dis for femininity and that makes it really difficult for a man nowadays to define himself um i work with a lot of men whom actually and this is very funny if, if you just hear the words whom i help to reconnect with their masculinity <laughs> um and sometimes it has more power when it comes from a woman you know so when i say hey it's okay to be a guy and when you feel anger come up or when you feel these inner feelings come up go outside and chop wood 
you know, do something with impact. That is honoring your masculinity, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's part of who you are. That's the stuff that you made out of. Now, um, channeling that into um, superiority and degradation and so forth, that would not be acceptable um, on a higher consciousness level. But it doesn't matter where you are, how enlightened you are. You're still a guy, okay? And to deny that means to deny a really important part mm-hmm. and source of your energy. So, again, it's all about the balance within. From a metaphysical standpoint, um, one cannot reach enlightenment. I'll say it in this very short, sort of almost abbreviated version if those two aspects are not balanced out. And there's a third component, actually, the trinity of things, which is the divine inner child that will develop uh, and uh, grow as we balance those two aspects. So ultimately, it's about the divine trinity within so that we can tap into our creation and manifestation energies. That's where it all wants to go. Miss Yoda Brentis and Mr. Jeff Casper, I want to thank you both so much for your time. And you can learn more about both these two lovely individuals by going to their websites at selfunification.com and transcodes.com. They both work on this series called Transcodes. It's fantastic. You can download several lessons, meditations. They'll take you on these guided journeys. And you'll learn and evolve and grow your spirit in a way that there's no one else out there. So it's very unique. I highly, highly recommend it. But uh, thank you both so, so much for a great and uh, enthralling interview. Thank, thank you, you so much. And thanks for having us on your great show. Appreciate it much. <laughs> yes. Joining us now is the Astrophenom, our astrologer, Ms. Constance Stellis. You can learn more about Ms. Stellis by going to her website at ConstanceStellis.com. Ms. Stellis. hmm According to the astrological charts, where do you see masculinity and femininity play out, Mm -hmm. especially in a person's chart? Do certain charts prelude or reveal more masculine types based on the – how does that work? Well, first of all, when you do a chart for someone, it could be a frog. You don't know. It's 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 an energy map. You know, and it's based on the birth time, day, the birth day, time, year, and place. So once you have that um, that chart, what you have is a map of the person's um, um, ingredients, so to speak. So we have the sun, which is the personality, the moon, which is our feelings, Mercury, which is our mental conversation apparatus, and Mars and Venus. Mars being the assertive, aggressive, masculine energy, and female, I mean, and Venus, the um, uh, yin or um, receptive um, uh, female energy. Now, there are other planets involved in the chart, uh, and there are also signs, 12 signs, as everybody knows, and some of those are considered masculine signs, and some are uh, considered feminine. So when you add up all of the energies in someone's chart, some people have extremely yang or masculine charts, and some people have very yin, and most people have a blend. But when you want to look for, let's say, the masculine action, because a masculine sign is an assertive sign, 
um, uh, an assertive uh, planet, you look to Mars. Now, some people, men or women, have Mars in a feminine sign. That has nothing to do with sexuality, but it means the way a person asserts themselves is um, much calmer, much more tender, much more um, feeling. And then sometimes you have women that have Mars in a very assertive sign. And, uh, you know, these are the people who have no problem being CEOs or, or, you know, wrestlers or something where they have to get their energy out. Now, Venus, being the feminine side of things, is also governs creativity. Um, so many, many great artists have Venus prominent in their chart and their men. So there's a whole way of blending it. But if you remember that Mars was the um, god of war and the assertive um, energy in a chart, then we all have that inside of us. And in general, men have to learn a little bit more about, let's say, quote-unquote, their feminine side, which is happening in society, and women have to learn more about their masculine side, which has happened a great deal in society because feminism kind of cooked the, the lid off of that, and uh, you have very, very assertive women, and we're trying to find the balance um, uh, right now and into the future. Okay, and is there anything that is common about a person who is same-sex or transgender? They have certain characteristics and qualities in their charts that if you were to look at a person's chart, you would say, okay, well, there's likelihood of them uh, having that sexual First preference. of all, same-sex is almost impossible to determine from a chart. If you see a woman's chart that is extremely yang or extreme, extremely masculine, um, there are many options in, in that department. Um, she could be a very assertive woman. And I mean, let's think about Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> this was an assertive woman. And her husband, Dennis, was, uh, he, he made a big joke. He said, how do you stay married to Margaret? And he said, you learn the magic words, yes, dear. So um, it's kind of a joke, but he, he was not, you know, someone who, who she just dominated and ran roughshod over, but she clearly was a powerhouse, and that's where she was going, and their marriage was quite successful um, for a number of years. So whether somebody is same-sex or not, it's quite difficult to see in a chart, and um, there are a lot of, here's a funny example, Brad Pitt has a very, very, um, yin or receptive chart and you know our image of Brad Pitt is just about as masculine as they come Angelina Jolie also has a very uh, not also she has a very assertive masculine chart so their polarities are not quote unquote typical but seems to work out just fine transgender is a different uh, situation uh, and that has a lot of confusion around it because many of the people who uh, go that route are um, have a lot of psychological and sexual problems and in general they believe this will um, solve their problems and it rarely does. Okay, and are there any times where you'll see a chart and you'll see extreme ends of stereotypical masculinity or stereotypical femininity. When I say uh, the stereotypical 
means masculinity, which means somebody who's too hard, yes, 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 yes. too cut off from their feelings, and then uh, the, the femininity, which Damn means they are too tough. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. So where would you see those? Is there, are there any particular signs that are susceptible? Well, or all of the signs are one, one let's say, um, uh, dynamic or the other. So we start with Aries is masculine, Taurus is feminine, Gemini is masculine, Cancer is feminine, Leo is Masculine, Virgo is feminine, Libra, masculine, Scorpio, feminine, Sagittarius, masculine. So it goes uh, uh, off and on. And make it simpler, all the fire signs, Leo, Sagittarius, and Aries, are masculine. All the water signs, Virgo, Taurus, Capricorn, are feminine. All the air signs are masculine, and all the water signs are feminine. So one another way of looking at a chart is seeing what the elements are, and then you get that information right away. So a person who has a very watery chart is necessarily going to be a very kind of receptive, um, more on the yin or feminine side. See, that word feminine is bad because we think about it as, as, uh, as only women. If you think about it as yin, Male or female could have that energy. So we'll say receptive and assertive. So uh, a very yin chart um, can be the helpless, oh, please take care of me syndrome for a boy or a girl, for a man or a woman. And the um, um, uh, very masculine or very fiery chart is kind of get out of my way, I'm doing my thing, and I'm not going to pay attention to anyone. So those extremes um, mean that that person has to learn some balance. Miss Constance Stellis, the astrophenom, thank you so much for that great and insightful perspective on masculinity and femininity on the astrological. My pleasure, my pleasure. And to learn more about Miss Constance Stellis and to get a chart reading done with Miss Constance Stellis, please go to our website at constancestellis.com. Also want to let our listeners know that Miss Stellis is a regularly featured writer for the Huffington Post, so be sure to check her out at huffingtonpost.com. Thank you so much, Miss Stellis. My pleasure. Okay, everyone, that concludes tonight's edition of the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show. I want to give a very special thanks to Dr. Robert Masters. Special thanks to Mr. Jeff Casper, Ms. Yona Brint, and the Astro Phenom, Ms. Constance Stellas. Also want to give a special thanks to our other virtues, Ms. Carrie O'Connor, Ms. Laura Lynn, and Ms. Lisa Caza. To learn more about the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com. Till the next time we meet, my friends, wishing upon you an abundance of peace, love, and fears. Take good care, and thanks so much for listening. The deals are getting hotter during the dear days of summer. Get 0% financing for 60 months on all John Deere compact tractors. Plus, get a best-in-class six-year powertrain warranty at no additional cost. Hurry in today for the hot deals of summer. Offer ends August 2nd, 2016, subject to approved installment credit with John Deere Financial. Terms, conditions, exclusions, and warranty limitations apply. See dealer for details. Visit your local John Deere dealer today to take advantage of special savings going on now. Find out more at myjohndeeredealer.com.